This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. It's considered the birth of broadcast journalism. March 13, 1938, Hitler's German army was invading Austria and becoming a growing threat to all of Europe. What you'll hear now is the first comprehensive broadcast that linked America with a world careening toward war. The beginning of what became the CBS World News Roundup, the nation's longest-running network newscast. The program of St. Louis Blues, originally scheduled for this time, has been canceled. Representative Maury Maverick of Texas, scheduled at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, will be heard instead at 8.45 p.m. this evening, speaking on the subject, Too Many Battleships and War. Tonight, the world trembles, torn by conflicting forces. Throughout this day, event has crowded upon event in tumultuous Austria. Meanwhile, the outside world, gravely shaken by the Austrian crisis, moves cautiously through a maze of diplomatic perils. Since the German troops crossed the Austrian border on the historic invasion last Friday, news has flowed across the Atlantic in a steady stream. The German Chancellor now winds his way through the conquered nation in a parade of triumph to end in a tremendous spectacle in Vienna. As German troops swarm across frontiers in their first offensive since 1914, momentous decisions are being reached in the capitals outside Germany. And so the world spotlight, for three days fastened upon Austria, is shared tonight by London's tiny Downing Street, by the Quai d'Orsay, whose buildings of state line the Seine River in Paris by other chancelleries throughout the world. To bring you the picture of Europe tonight, Columbia now presents a special broadcast which will include pickups direct from London, from Paris, and such other European capitals as at this late hour abroad have communication channels available. This is Bob Trout speaking to you from New York, opening Columbia's shortwave transatlantic program to cover the key cities of Europe. But before switching to our first European capital, let us look once again at the latest news bulletins with swift, fresh details of a Europe in turmoil. From the Press Radio Bureau comes a summary written from news supplied by the Associated Press, the United Press, and the International News Service. And here's a quick glimpse of the critical situation in Central Europe. Right at this moment, Austria is no longer a nation, but is now officially a part of the German Empire. 
Austria and Germany are being welded together under one command, one army, one policy, one economic compact. The Nazis are driving with all their might to bring Austria under complete Nazi domination. President Miklas has been forced out. Ex-Chancellor Schuschnigg has fled to Hungary. Jews, Catholic leaders, and former Austrian government officials are being jailed. Hitler, protected by a bodyguard of nearly 4,000 troops and police, is preparing tonight to go from Linz to Salzburg and from there to Vienna on a roundabout triumphal tour of the land of his birth, a land which he's fast placing under his thumb. Italy has apparently given Germany an okay, and Hitler has almost fervently thanked Mussolini. In Berlin, Field Marshal Hermann Goering has served notice that Germany intends to go after the Germans in Czechoslovakia, already ringed on several sides by German troops. Czechoslovakia has protested to Germany. It claims that German planes have flown over Czech boundaries, and so Germany promises an investigation. Czechoslovakian diplomatic circles argue that Czechoslovakia is going to be a much tougher nut to crack than Austria was. Their attitude, of course, reinforced by the very strong position which France is taking tonight. France has a new cabinet. Its governmental crisis ended, and it seems to be moving at full speed to bolster up the Czechs and to tighten its alliances with Russia, and from all indications, Russia is willing. In addition to diplomatic steps, motorized columns of French troops are now pushing eastward from the general vicinity of Nancy, at which point France has its strongest eastern concentration of military strength. Infantrymen, machine gunners, and artillery units are included in this movement, and as French officials are closely guarding the scope and details of the movements, this may be of great significance. In London, across the Channel, Prime Minister Chamberlain and his new Foreign Secretary, Viscount Halifax, put their heads together in a conference over Hitler's formal announcement absorbing Austria into the German Reich. They have debated whether they're going to join France in a very stern course of action, and it looks as though they are prepared to go a very long way. Mr. Chamberlain will tell the House of Commons about his plans tomorrow morning, and his message is now being drawn up. However, there's a great deal of excitement in London, which today witnessed one of the wildest demonstrations in years. Tonight, more than 25,000 angry laborites and a few communists fought hand-to-hand with reserves of mounted and foot police outside the Whitestone German Embassy in London, and they shouted, Hitler is driving Europe to war. The demonstrators were permitted to deliver a manifesto of protest at the door of the German Embassy, and the demonstration then swirled in orderly fashion past the Czechoslovakian legation, and now the shouts became, Austria and Czechoslovakia must be saved. The Hitlers and the Chamberlains must go. Some of the crowd went to the Austrian embassy, arriving there just in time to boo the hoisting of the Nazi swastika flag over the former Austrian legation. Unofficially, many Italian sources say that Mussolini is pretty concerned about the shape of events and more concerned about the shape of things to come. However, the Italian official position is hands-off, this despite the fact that German troops are at the historic Brenner Pass. In Austria, Adolf Hitler has had a triumphant day, a day, however, in which he has been closely guarded and is being closely guarded right now at this moment, as the Nazification of Austria goes on. In Styria province, the original Nazi hotbed, Catholics are in terror. The Nazis claim that they have discovered a hidden store of arms in a monastery. Elsewhere in Austria, there's excitement and turmoil. 
In order to get a clear idea of just what has been happening, the Associated Press says that you have to visualize what happened in every city, town, and hamlet of the United States in 1918 on Armistice Day. Masses of shouting, singing, flag-waving Viennese milled around, marched through the streets saluting and yelling the Nazi call, Hail Victory! Truckloads of men, women, and children, there were even mothers with babies in their arms, rode through the streets setting up a terrific racket. It seemed as if the whole population was in the streets. Significant of the new order of things, a revolution in the customs and life of the people, as well as in the political and economic aspects, was the switch of coffeehouse music from the old graceful Viennese waltzes to new German brisk martial airs. There's not much opposition, at least outwardly, to the Nazi drive, but inwardly, no one knows just how a good many of the Austrian people feel because it must be remembered that Austria is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, that there'd been a very large socialist vote in the last election. In a copyright dispatch, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency says tonight that at least 150 prominent Jews, bankers, and businessmen have been arrested by Nazi brown shirts acting as auxiliary police. The cry of anti-Semitism is being taken up in the Austrian streets. Anti-Jewish measures have already been promulgated. The Austrian press is under Nazi domination. The Nazis have taken over the radio, and they are out to control everything. That last-minute summary of the European situation was furnished by the Press Radio Bureau. And now Columbia begins its radio tour of Europe's capital cities with a transoceanic pickup from London, where we are to hear Ellen C. Wilkinson, woman Labour member of the House of Commons. We take you now to London, England. While Hitler continued, or you might say, completed his triumphal conquest of Austria today, Great Britain remained relatively calm. Here in London, there were some anti-German demonstrations this afternoon, a few clashes with the police, but nothing at all serious compared to what I saw in Vienna Friday and yesterday. What happened was this. The International Peace Campaign organized a big meeting in Trafalgar Square. It was at this meeting that Professor Haldane was quoted as having said that criminals were running the British government. There were boos and hisses at the mention of the name of the Prime Minister. When the meeting broke up, most of the crowd, numbering several thousands, and giving the clenched fist salute, marched on the German embassy in Carlton House Terrace, not far away. Mounted and foot police, however, blocked the way at a respectable distance and stopped the crowd. Finally, after much discussion, three persons were permitted by the police to present a letter of protest to the German embassy. I must say that after the delirious mobs I saw in Vienna on Friday night, today's demonstrations here in London looked pretty tame. From the German embassy, the demonstrators made their way to the Czech legation, where they yelled... Save Austria, save Czechoslovakia. The first, of course, is too late. But the second, about saving Czechoslovakia, undoubtedly was the main preoccupation of Prime Minister Chamberlain and his Foreign Minister, Lord Halifax, today. Mr. Chamberlain returned from Checkers late in the afternoon, just before demonstrators tried to force their way into Downing Street. A cordon was quickly thrown across the street. Tonight, Lord Halifax saw Mr. Chamberlain and they talked for about a half an hour. Throughout the day, of course, both had been receiving reports from Austria and the rest of Central Europe. Tomorrow, these will be supplemented by a personal report of the British minister in Vienna. 
who was today called back to London for personal consultations. Tomorrow morning there will be a full cabinet meeting and in the afternoon the government will make statements on the crisis in both houses of parliament. About Czechoslovakia, in circles usually well informed, they were saying tonight that Paris and London might agree to save Czechoslovakia after all. The formula, according to this source, was that France would make a declaration about Czechoslovakia and Great Britain would make a declaration about France. But the meaning would be that both countries agreed to help Czechoslovakia if attacked. Many here, of course, are skeptical as to whether Great Britain would go so far. Now, here is Miss Ellen Wilkinson, who needs no introduction to American listeners, and she is going to tell you what, in her opinion, Britain thinks about the matter and what Britain will do. The luckiest Englishman tonight is Anthony Eden. He got out of the government in time. The attitude of Italy in the Austrian crisis has reinforced dramatically the warning he gave us in his resignation speech to the House of Commons. Everyone will meet about London tonight, whatever their political opinions, is saying, I wouldn't like to be Mr. Chamberlain, having to meet the Commons tomorrow afternoon. You will be asking in America, why doesn't Britain do something? Why this strange paralysis in British politics? Well, first, no one in Britain wants war. At the great protest meeting in Trafalgar Square this afternoon, a speaker asked, who will be pacifist in the coming war? A voice in the crowd promptly answered, the men who fought in the last war. That voice represented the man in the street. Yet in the same meeting, the demonstrators were shouting, hands off Czechoslovakia. It is not that the British are afraid of Hitler and Mussolini. If they have to fight, they will. But there is no war feeling here as yet. That is perhaps because there is a curious division in public opinion here. The traditions of the parties have somehow got mixed. On the one side, the liberals, pacifists, the labor and socialist adherents have been working against war for years. Until Hitler came to power, they were rather pro-German. But liberals and socialists have seen the fascists suppress liberalism and socialism. The left in Britain doesn't want war, but it doesn't want Hitler either. On the other hand, the conservatives, who in principle have tended to glorify the tradition of arms, have a certain sympathy with those who have suppressed in Germany and Italy much the same sort of people who are the political opponents of conservatism in England. Therefore, the right, for months, have been trying not to see the fascist threat to the British Empire. Zulu when we meet in Parliament tomorrow, the situation will not seem as clear to us here as it seems to you 6,000 miles away in America. But the idea of playing the game, even if it be a dirty game, according to a set of rules, is strongly ingrained in the English character. When a man rushes in and scoops the pool out of his turn, as Hitler has done in Austria, we English tend to get annoyed. So Mr. Ackley, the leader of the opposition, has been to see Lord Halifax today on the Foreign Secretary's invitation. When he let Mr. Eden resign, Mr. 
Chamberlain banked his whole future and that of his government on making friends with the dictators. To do this, he had to put the League of Nations and collective security in the refrigerator. Today, as I have talked with all kinds of British voters, from agricultural laborers to businessmen, I find that the feeling is rather one of curiosity as to how Mr. Chamberlain will explain the immediate results of his policy tomorrow. But as yet, the feeling, though people here are deeply moved, is mainly one of interested curiosity. All the newspapers today have carried comforting statements that there is no immediate danger of war. Responsible politicians are considering what it is that Britain can really do. I was lunching with Mr. Lloyd George this afternoon. His view was that the fascist expansion might have been stopped in Manchuria or in Abyssinia, easiest of all in Spain, but that the present challenge was the most difficult of all to me. France and Britain touched the frontiers neither of Austria nor Czechoslovakia as their fleets and lands touched both Abyssinia and Spain. The chief labor leaders had met Mr. Attlee, the leader of the opposition today. I judge by a recent meetings of the National Executive of the Labour Party on which I sit that any support of government action in Europe by the British Labour Movement would depend on what our cabinet is prepared to do in Spain. No responsible politician here thinks that anything can now be done for Austria. The tone of a German reply to the Anglo-French protest makes it doubtful whether even appeals for clemency but the Austrian leaders will receive much attention. But if Austria is finished, the Anglo-German conversations, I think, are finished too. There was a feeling among governing circles here that perhaps concessions might be made to Germany on colonies. The country would not stand for any such move now. It is expected that a joint note from France and Britain regarding Czechoslovakia will be issued this week. It will have to be carefully phrased. Any guarantee given now, the governments know they will have to stand by. Parliament tomorrow will have its most exciting session since the abdication of King Edward VIII. It, this has been an exciting Parliament. Tomorrow, it will be a very serious one. We'll return you now to America. Those were the words from London spoken by Ellen C. Wilkinson, woman labor member of the House of Commons in the capital of the British Empire. Miss Wilkinson was introduced by William L. Shira, Columbia's Central European Director. As London cautiously contemplates the Rome-Berlin axis, France watches the situation with the solemnity of a nation whose border runs beside that of Germany. Having cancelled all army leaves for the soldiers who manned the famed Maginot line of forts along the Franco-German frontier, Paris today finally succeeded in forming a cabinet headed by Leon Blum, Minister of Finance as well as Premier. For news from Paris itself, flashed across the Atlantic from the French capital, we turn to the voice of Edgar Maurer, Chicago Daily News European correspondent since the World War. A Pulitzer Prize winner, Mr. Maurer is now head of the Paris Bureau of the Chicago Daily News. We take you now to Paris, France. Hello, America. This is Paris calling. Here is Edgar A. Maurer. 
With the invasion and conquest of Austria, the true nature of German policy has, in French eyes, become completely clear. Nazi Germany has thrown off the mask. Its aim is revealed, not the innocent and inevitable search for some theoretical equality, the famous Gleichberechtigung, but a bid for the mastery of Europe, a mastery to be based neither on productivity nor on civilization, but on brutal, naked force. Henceforth, here in Paris at least, German explanations will be simply swept aside. Hitler has sought to justify his latest aggression by an alleged breach of faith on the part of Austria. A curious explanation on German lips, for if breach of treaty were adequate pretext for the invasion and conquest of the faithless country, then Germany ought to have been invaded and conquered a dozen times, for it has broken virtually all the undertakings it has made since the war. But there is no one in all France who does not believe that Hitler invaded Austria not to hold a genuine plebiscite, but to prevent the plebiscite plan by Schuschnigg from demonstrating to the entire world just how little hold national socialism really had on that little country. The great powers in the past made numerous declarations of their guarantee of Austrian independence. But Italy went over to the famous Axis, Rome, Berlin, and perhaps actually planned the German invasion of Austria. When the test came and Great Britain and France got no support from Italy, they failed to go beyond a verbal protest. As a matter of fact, Chamberlain consented to a joint protest at Berlin only at nine o'clock last Friday evening after Schuschnigg had actually been forced out of office, although the French had been urging him to do so for five hours previously. Since the British and French ambassadors forgot to wear their steel helmets, Berlin was not impressed. The aggression continued. When, however, the Reichswehr actually swept over the Austrian borders, the French people got an electric shock. For this action, along with the arrogant tone of the subsequent explanations, convinced the slowest-witted peasant in the remotest French hamlet that the Allied victory of 1918 had collapsed. France has been earnestly trying to preserve the peace. It is sincerely believed, or tried to, that nobody, nobody could really want another war. Each time there has been armed aggression in Manchuria, in Spain, or in China, the various French cabinets have sacrificed French prestige and interest to localizing the struggle. And after each new concession to the so-called dynamic powers, French optimists have proclaimed that finally the aggressor would be satisfied and in future keep the peace. The rape of Austria has destroyed this sort of optimism, perhaps irrevocably. Facing the specter of a new war, France is nonetheless determined to make a tremendous effort to prevent it. The policy of submission has failed. For this reason, because great sacrifices may be asked of the entire nation, Léon Blum sought to form a cabinet of real national union stretching from the communists to the extreme Tories. And when this proved premature, hastily threw together a new popular front cabinet. Its foreign minister is Joseph Paul Boncourt, a tried champion of collective security and an open opponent of dictatorship. I suspect that the new cabinet will write off the invasion of Austria as a bad job, but will make it clear that it considers Czechoslovakia sacred and intangible. It would like to secure a statement to the same effect from Great Britain, but failure to get it will not in the least mean that the French intend to let the Czechs down. 
Admittedly, there are Frenchmen willing to buy peace from the dictators at almost any price. They are quoted in Paris newspapers, and they make a certain show in the Paris Salon. But unless I am mistaken, they are a small minority. In the densely populated faubourg of Paris, and all those gray provincial towns and quiet villages that are really France, something seems to be stirring, something that has been quiet since 1918. If I were Adolf Hitler, I should take stock of this something before undertaking the invasion of any other country. This concludes, this concludes Mr. Morris talk. I now return you to America. From Paris, Chicago Daily News correspondent Edgar A. Maurer has discussed the latest developments in the capital of France on Colombia's radio tour of Europe. And now some 300 miles from Paris, in Berlin, Hermann Goering, the number two Nazi left in charge of Germany's capital while Hitler tours Austria, hinting again that Germany's next objective is Czechoslovakia, bluntly declared that German cannon are ready to roar defiance at any nation which attempts to stay the German invasion. And so now to the city of Berlin, under the rule of Adolf Hitler for some five years, we now switch to hear the opinions of Pierre J. Huss, international news service correspondent and veteran writer on international affairs. We take you now to Berlin, Germany. Any visitor from abroad who arrived in Berlin today must have looked with amazement at the typically quiet German Sunday. People walked by the thousands in the Tiergarten and enjoyed the spring sunshine. For a brief hour this morning, Field Marshal Goering, in the absence of Chancellor Hitler, conducted the annual state ceremonies in the opera on Unter den Linden in commemoration of Germany's two million war dead and afterwards reviewed troop detachments. Every house has its flag, but beyond that there are no outward indications of the great day. Cafes and restaurants are crowded, and the events in Austria are the sole topic of conversation. Every 15 minutes the emotional voice of a broadcaster, speaking from relay points in Austria, or again from Berlin, inform the listeners step by step of dramatic events as they are shaping up in the neighboring land. I have found it a keen desire amongst all classes, official and private, to impress upon the outsider the fact that Austria has come back to the German fold of its own will, and that this natural development could not be regarded as the occasion for victory parades, but one of common rejoicing between two brother countries over the closing of an unfortunate chapter. It is entirely possible that Germany will be given full opportunity for public rejoicing when once the coming plebiscite, fixed for April 10, is over and has cemented the new brotherhood. It has become clear that Adolf Hitler has inspired 68 million Germans in the past few days with the new flame of patriotism, if only for the fact that he has reunited German blood with German blood. Popular German opinion in this respect can be summed up as follows. This is exclusively a German affair and does not concern anybody else. Foreign countries before all should realize that present events are merely a reparation of the disastrous blunders of the Versailles Treaty. In addition, the average German is convinced 
that in the last 24 hours the European situation has taken a turn for the better. The misfiring of the Hitler-Schuschnick agreement of Berchtesgaden and the consequent friction between Berlin and Vienna created no little tension and anxiety. There is little doubt that the beer and the coffee in Berlin and in other cities tastes much more enjoyable to the German now than it did in the past weeks. The German army is in Vienna. Hitler himself will be there soon. But there has been no major difficulties from powers outside. Mussolini proved himself a true friend. And that in itself has reassured the man in the street that no peace, that peace hangs no longer in the balance over the question of Austria. We now take you to Vienna, Austria. This is Edward Murrow speaking from Vienna. It's now nearly 2.30 in the morning, and Herr Hitler has not yet arrived. No one seems to know just when he will get here, but most people expect him sometime after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's, of course, obvious after one glance at Vienna that a tremendous reception is being prepared. I arrived here by air from Warsaw and Berlin only a few hours ago, and I'd like to tell you a few things seen and heard in the course of the day. There was very little excitement apparent in Warsaw. People went quietly about their work. The cafes were full, and the drivers of those horse-drawn cabs were muffled up in their fur coats, and they seemed pretty remote from the crisis. A Polish friend of mine said to me, you see, we Poles have seen so many headlines during the past 20 years that they no longer excite us. There were rumors in Warsaw that the frontier guard had been strengthened, but these were officially denied. Foreign correspondents there seemed to agree that there was very little probability of Poland making a protest in any form concerning recent developments in Austria. It was Minister of War at luncheon yesterday, and he certainly seemed calm and unworried. And just as I left Warsaw, a distinguished Polish gentleman said to me, this is a time for cool heads and calm decisions. Perhaps that sums up Poland's position. And then a few hours ago in Berlin, I saw many couples walking along the Unter den Linden. Their primary interest seemed to be enjoying a brisk walk in the clear sunshine of a March afternoon. The usual number of people were strolling through the Tiergarten, and Berlin seemed to be about the same as it was last Sunday afternoon. From the air, Vienna didn't look much different than it has before. But nevertheless, it's changed. The crowds are courteous, as they've always been. But many people are in holiday mood. They lift the right arm a little higher here than in Berlin. And the Heil Hitler is said a little more loudly. There isn't a great deal of real hilarity, but at the same time, there doesn't seem to be much feeling of tension. Young stormtroopers are riding about the streets, riding about in trucks and vehicles of all sorts, singing and tossing oranges out to the crowd. Nearly every principal building has its armed guard, including the one from which I'm speaking. There are still huge crowds along the Ringstrasse, and people still stand outside the principal hotels, just waiting and watching for some 
famous man to come in or out. The answers for the customs union between Germany and Austria has been announced. I overheard an, el I overheard an elderly gentleman say of Dr. Kutcher's, the German foreign minister who first proposed the Anschluss, he had the right idea, but no tools with which to work. As I said, everything is quiet in Vienna tonight. There's a certain air of expectancy about the city, everyone waiting and wondering where and at what time Herr Hitler will arrive tomorrow. And we're planning to bring you an eyewitness account of Herr Hitler's entry into Vienna sometime tomorrow. We return you now to America. From Berlin, we have heard Pierre J. Huss, International News Service Berlin correspondent, and then last of all from Vienna, Columbia's European director, Edward R. Merrill, has just spoken to us, which completes Columbia's tour of Europe's troubled capitals. And now in our studios in Washington, D.C., we're to hear now from the Honorable Louis B. Schwellenbach, Democratic senator from the state of Washington. Soon, the increased armaments bill will be argued on the floor of the United States Senate, and as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Schwellenbach has a particular interest in any proposal affecting America's armament. As the United States looks toward Europe tonight, we listen to the opinions of Senator Louis B. Schwellenbach. And for that purpose, we take you now to Washington, D.C. To the average American, the Nazi seizure of Austria demonstrates three things. First, the fertility of contracts or treaties with dictator nations. No one can deny that Friday's invasion was a direct violation of the Berchtesgaden Agreement of February 12th. There, Hitler agreed with Schusnick on the independence of Austria. Certainly, no one can deny to an independent state the right to conduct a plebiscite on a question of fundamental policy. Yet Chisnick's announcement of a plebiscite for today resulted in the seizure of Austrian control by Hitler. Second, it demonstrates that treaties signed at the point of a sword are worthless. This climax is the series of violations of Versailles by Hitler. In no instance have the other signatories to Versailles even more than mildly protested. Third and most important, it demonstrates the futility of war as an instrument for settling international controversies. Twenty years ago, we were in the midst of a gigantic struggle to preserve democracy for the world. We gave our blood, our lives, our money, and our resources. Twenty years later, we see the torch of world leadership being seized by the world's leading dictator. We cannot deny the fact that Adolf Hitler today is Europe's leader. We tremble at what he will do next. We know what will become of religious liberty in Austria, both for the Jews and the Catholics. It just will not exist. We know what will happen to freedom of speech and of the press. They will be suppressed. Democratic processes for seven million Austrians are extinct. The probabilities are that he will press into Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, and then on into the Ukraine. Events are moving rapidly in Europe these days. The old continental intrigue is too fast moving for the average American to understand. England thought that by substituting the realistic actualities of Chamberlain 
toward the idealism of Eden. She could tem stem the tide of the onslaught of the aggressive dictators. Just two weeks later, she found she was too late. Frances thought throughout the years that she could rely upon the steel ring which she had placed about Germany. She now faces its collapse. Even Mussolini looked with patronizing friendliness on his imitator. He now finds that the student has outgrown the master. What does this all add up to so far as America is concerned? Certainly disillusionment as to what can be accomplished by the instrument of war. We tried to preserve democracy in Europe once by going to war. We know now that that method does not work. I have been saddened by the events of these last three days, so saddened that I took solace in that source from which I always find comfort when it seems that the going is too rough to stand. I went to the essay of Emerson in which he said, and I quote, This law writes the laws of cities and nations. It will not be balked of its end in the smallest iota. It is in vain to build or plot or combine against it. Things refuse to be mismanaged long. Though no checks to a new evil appear, the checks exist and will appear. Nothing arbitrary, nothing artificial can endure. Of all forms of government yet conceived, democracy furnishes the most useful agencies for fighting arbitrary and artificial mismanagement. What we must do is to protect and preserve democratic methods in America. No doubt we will be importuned again to spend our resources in a futile effort to correct conditions in Europe. The inevitable law of which Emerson speaks will take care of Europe. What we must do is to preserve American democratic processes to care for our own. History shows that democ democracies have disappeared when they fail to care for their own. Futility has ever been the nemesis of democracies. Never in the world's history has it been more necessary for democracy to work than it is for democracy to work here now. That we have an abundance of local problems, no one can deny. Quarrels exist between industry and labor and government. This is the time when these quarrels should be submerged for the general good. America's position must be consolidated. If the rest of the world wants to involve itself in a general brawl, that is its business. The permanent advance of civilization depends upon the successful maintenance of democratic institutions somewhere. That place should be here. Let us turn our hand to that task. Let no outside influences turn us from it. The Honorable Louis B. Schwellenbach, Democratic member of the United States Senate from Washington, who is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has presented America's view of the Austrian crisis. We return you to New York. With world history tense in the greatest crisis in 24 years, the Columbia Network has brought to American citizens a summary of European opinion presented from the capitals of Europe by shortwave radio across the Atlantic Ocean. From London, we heard a member of the House of Parliament, Ellen C. Wilkinson. From Paris, Edgar Maurer, veteran correspondent of the Chicago Daily News. From Berlin, International News Service correspondent, Pierre J. Huss. From Vienna, Edward R. Murrow, Columbia's European director. And finally, to summarize opinion in our own capital city, United States Senator Louis B. Schwellenbach has just finished speaking to you from Washington, D.C. 
This broadcast from five world capitals has been a presentation of Columbia's Department of Special Events, which will continue to cover the European situation, bringing you special broadcasts and bulletins as fresh news arrives on this side of the ocean. Tonight at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time, Columbia presents its regular Sunday night news broadcast, Headlines and Bylines, which tonight will include the latest summaries at that hour. Bob Trout speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.